there's companies that have hardly any turnover and they're listed for two, three, four hundred million market cap. I mean, that's insane. Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. I'm your host, Antoine Valter, and in today's episode, I'm so glad to welcome Reinhard Hübner as my guest. Too much stupid money is chasing too little good targets. Reinhard is the CEO of Ski on Water, a water company that went from zero to 750 million euros of yearly turnover in just a decade. Crystal meth is surely not good enough. I want some of that stuff for my next party, but it's probably toxic. Last year, Ski on Water won the prestigious Water Company of the Year award, even if I would bet that many simply never heard the company's name. Why so? Well, because Skion is built from 17 public acquisitions and probably a bit more behind the scenes as Reinhard reveals between the lines. And to that extent, Skion Water is quite a unique beast in the water industry, as it applies an approach that's similar, for instance, to Danaher, but on purpose and by design at a different position in the water food chain, as a kind of decentralized and rapidly growing EPC conglomerate. So, if you've ever come across Ovivo, Envirochemi, PAC, Helico or Sembrain, which was on that microphone not so long ago, you indeed were facing a ski-on-water company. But what's the logic behind this methodic building of the perfect portfolio? What are the secrets of this fast-rising water empire? What were the mistakes that were made on the way? And what can you learn from all of that? How can it inspire water entrepreneurs and investors? The architect that builds Ski on Water, Reinhard Hübner, answers all these questions and even more in an impressive act of transparency and in an incredibly actionable and inspiring way. I'll swiftly leave him the floor. Let me just remind you that if guests of the quality of Reinhard Hübner come to share their wisdom on my microphone, it's because of the growing community of people that listen and share each of these episodes. So first, thank you. And please, if you like what you hear, share it around you. Come on, do it. And I'll meet you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, Reinhard. Welcome to the show. Hey, Anton. Thanks for inviting me. There's a ton of things I'd like to discuss with you today. It's not every day that I have someone which is featured on the Water Technology Power List, which is also featured on the most transformative leaders in the water industry list. So you can guess that I have many things which I'd like to discuss with you. But that all starts with my good old tradition of the postcard. And you're sending today a postcard from... Frankfurt. So what can you tell me about Frankfurt, which I would ignore by now? Frankfurt is much better than its reputation. I'm originally from Hamburg, which is one of the most beautiful cities in Germany. But I've been here now uh, for almost 12 years. And it's become home. It's with a river. That's always good when you work in the water sector. Especially in summer, the banks of the river are actually very beautiful, full of people enjoying the nice weather, having drinks and barbecuing and what have you. And that's probably also the postcard I would send. Life around rivers. This is how most cities evolved historically, because water is life. So this is a good fit with uh, what I'm passionate about work-wise. Which makes for a smooth transition for my, my first question, because you mentioned you're passionate about water. I just wanted to know how to define you, because you could be an investor that happens to cross the field of water and then stays there. Or you could be entering that field because you say, I want to do something with water, so let me be a water investor. How would you define yourself? First of all, I'm not an investor. My background is operations. I did manufacturing logistics and my PhD is on mathematical optimization of specialty chemicals production networks. So water is an accident in my life. I got asked to do a project for a uh, utility in the UK. I said, hmm, infrastructure, UK, hmm, don't know. And then they said, it's London. And I said, okay, cool. I have a good friend in London who I hadn't seen in four years. You pay me three months in London, I go. And I ended up with Thames Water. And in total, I worked uh, almost two years for Thames Water in operations. 
So I got into water on the operation side. I had no idea about investing and I had no intention to ever get any idea about investing. My plan was to become head of operations somewhere. And then I got hired away into uh, Skion because Mrs. Clutton had decided she wants to do something entrepreneurial in water. And uh, there was no clear plan of what this could be like. But the good thing was he didn't want an investment banker or M&A advisor to do this. He wanted somebody with an industrial background in water. That's why I was hired. So I learned everything about investing on the job, except for the fact that I'm from a family of lawyers. So I have a little bit of a predisposition to the legal stuff. So I'm not an investor. I was never meant to be an investor. Water happened to me. And the reason I became an investor is the opportunity to build something entrepreneurial in water. I wouldn't have done it in another area. But why build something entrepreneurial in water, which is maybe not the easiest field to do something like that? Well, you know what? Back then when we started, I had no idea why. I asked Ms. Clutton why, because I could not understand how you can want to do that. And uh, she had a very convincing reason. It was two different dimensions. One was it is actually a sector that addresses one of the biggest problems societies across the world face, and the problems will only get bigger. So it must be also a decent business opportunity given the fragmentation of the sector and the fact that it's a bit backwards. But even more importantly, it was also about her wanting to make a difference, giving things a chance, trying uh, to do things a bit differently, to contribute to the problems that societies face with water. So a bit of um, what will my grandchildren say? Did I make more money out of money or did I do something meaningful? And what it would entail, we had no idea at the time. We had a blank sheet of paper and we had a few ideas of, of what we could try. Uh, the first attempt that we tried was immediately a failure, but that's good because you learn from failures and if you do them early in the journey, uh, then you can correct your course fast. What was it? We did a startup type investment into a chemical-free cooling tower uh, treatment technology. And the conclusion actually was that startups are really difficult in water, caused by the fragmentation of the industry, but also by the risk aversion of customers. The fragmentation leads to an incredibly high sales effort. So your cost to make a sale are quite high in terms of how many times do you have to visit, how many customers, blah, blah, blah. But also customers, for good reasons, are reluctant to take risks. For a 2-3% cost saving to take a risk and end up in the newspaper because you polluted something or you shut something down or what have you, it's just not very appealing. So the benefit you provide with the new technology must be like 20-30% better than what's out there today to really excite somebody. Or you solve a problem for which there's no solution. That's always a fair game, of course. And to try this with a single product company will only work if your product is truly distinctive and many things that people call innovation are actually just an invention, an incremental improvement. They just don't make such a big difference. And this is also the trap we ran into. The technology worked and it was also environmentally beneficial in terms of using less or no chemicals, but it just didn't make enough of a difference for customers to get excited enough about it. So we integrated it into later on parts of it into Envirochemy when we acquired Envirochemy and the rest we shut down. There's a lot to unpack in what you just said. I'm taking the fragmented aspect and, and putting it in, in the fridge and we'll come back to that. This is a podcast. It's not the first time you appear on a podcast. So I did my due diligence. I've been listening to you on your previous appearance. I've heard your, your theory of the 20 to 30 person improvement in order to make a dent. You mentioned that theory when you were discussing with, uh, with Will Sarney and, and Tom Freiberg in their excellent podcast. And I've heard you discussing this element of the value-driven innovation versus the crisis-driven innovation with Paul O'Callaghan, which was a funny one because you hosted him on his own podcast. So that was also a good experience. Yeah, he could hardly host himself on his own PhD, right? <laughs> <laughs> I was discussing all of that with Paul on that microphone. So I'd like to dig a bit further into those directions for today. And this element of a single product company cannot succeed in the, in the water industry and the, a startup is difficult to take off in the water industry, somehow gives us some understanding key for what you're trying to build today with Ski on Water. So what is Ski on Water? Okay, Ski on Water started as Ski on investing into a few water technology companies. And when we got more successful at investing into water technology companies, we had to figure out, will this just be a group of companies we happen to be shareholder of? Or will this be more? 
And since we controlled the companies we acquired, there was also always alignment topics and so on. And so at some point we decided together with the management teams of our operational companies that there's a bit of an umbrella needed that also can be used towards the outside world. And then we grouped it into Ski on Water. So Ski on Water today is a water and wastewater treatment solution provider serving both municipal in some countries and industrial customers across pretty much all over the world. This is how I would define us. We still happen to have a strategy where we inorganically grow, so we still buy more companies, but the focus is on serving our customers with water and wastewater treatment solutions. And that we also do across the companies, so we can serve customers across the world, leveraging the resources of several companies. We share technologies, we develop uh, markets and uh, customers together. So there's a lot of collaboration behind the scenes, but to the outside world, also the companies stay very independent. We don't want to become another large corporate. We want to stay a little bit more decentralized and closer to the uh, uh, market, to the end customers. You don't want to become a large corporate. Can you put a name on what you don't want to become? There's various ways to look at it, right? I mean, obviously, everybody looks at uh, what now is Veolia plus Zoos in one, but that is very, very large and quite centralized in some areas and is still quite decentralized in other areas except for the name. But like, if you if you look at other people with an M&A strategy to grow, Pentair acquires companies and then makes them all Pentair. So they're completely Pentair. Uh, no, no judgment here, right? And Danaher... Uh, has a more decentralized strategy as well. Uh, they have Trojan, they have Southness, they have what have you. They keep more of the identity of the companies, but they're in the equipment business, not in the solution business. Pentair is also more or less an equipment business. So for us, it's the focus on end customer relationships, providing solutions to end customers and not selling components because the kind of difference we want to make in terms of bringing new things to customers every once in a while uh, is easier to do when you have the end customer relationship and when you don't have to go through an EPC or integrator, but you are the integrator. So that's, the, I think, the two things where we differ. We, we are an integrator. We provide complete treatment solutions. And we do this decentralized model that, that actually is somewhat similar to Danaher, but it's, of course, easier to do on the component side because on the component side, you have no overlaps. In the solution business, you sometimes have overlaps between the companies. Again, there's a lot to unpack here, but I have to keep a bit of the topics for the rest of our discussion. So I, I won't jump into everything right now. Let me start this deep dive into your strategy and your approach to the market with somehow the reason why I'm discussing with you today. Towards the end of my interviews, you know, I'm asking my, my guest to recommend me someone. And I was uh, interviewing Sebastian Andreasen from Sembrain. He recommended me to reach out to you, which was great because you were on, to be transparent on my bucket list for a while. But the reason why he recommended you is because Sembrain just got acquired by Ovivo, so by Ski on Water. And right now, I mean, if you're looking a bit left and right in the water industry, there's a lot of these moves happening. You could call it a frenzy, but at least there's something happening around this consolidation on what you mentioned is a scattered industry. You're playing your part into that. And I was just wondering, did you identify a driving force, a reason why all of that is happening right now? Do you see it lasting over time? And do you intend to keep playing a role into that in the next years? I'll first answer your question, um, and then I'll say something about Sembrain. The industry is indeed consolidating, and it has had consolidation runs before. The best-known example of that was U.S. Filter, uh, then Siemens Water, now Evoqua. For a while, they bought pretty much everything they could buy. Then it went wrong for a while, uh, and then with Evoqua now, it works very well, actually. This was a classic roll-up of different equipment companies without any, actually in the beginning capturing the synergies properly and without having a plan of what to do. And now there is a plan with Evoqua that works, but it took a few owners to get to that point. The result has been that there's no mid-sized companies anymore. There's lots of small ones, but the mid-sized with a few hundred million in turnover are gone, and then there's the big ones. The market structure still is quite similar. So when we looked at North America a few years ago, there was hardly any company in the range of, say, 75 to 200 million turnover. There was the small ones, and then there was a few very big ones. And we were actually lucky with Ovivo that they were in the range of two, 300 million and that we could take them from the stock market. This is still the case. So you really have to do small buy and build. We buy companies with one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten million 10 million in turnover. Not always, but we do that. But we don't do it because we want to get big. 
we do it when it's a fit. And in many cases in Europe, it's companies without successor, and these small companies actually struggle to manage succession. There is people who want to roll up just to get bigger, then to sell to the next owner. And this is the drive that's caused by, say, private equity-like money and all those ESG strategies these days by financial investors. And this is a bit dangerous in my view because I'm a bit harsh now maybe when I say uh, too much stupid money is chasing too little good targets. But there's really people who have no idea about the water sector, just do it to take a box and they will just have a high risk of destroying the companies by overpaying too much and then squeezing them until there's nothing left to squeeze. So the overlaying driver right now is, is all this ESG investment frenzy on top of the consolidation. If you look at buyers, many times it's private equity and the likes who buy strategics also buy and some buy also at high valuations and some have very clear and, and, and thought out strategies but other stuff is also just gobbled up. So just for me to, to understand that, that means that you see it's really a, as a financial thing. Well, there are some strategics that have a strategy and execute that strategy whether you like that strategy or not. I mean, again, um, Evoqua has had a strategy of why they buy certain things. Uh, Xylem has had a strategy of why they buy certain things uh, where you can say, yep, there's a logic behind what they do. And whether that works or not, the future will tell, but there's a logic. Some of these financial plays, I just don't see the logic other than the greater fool theory by selling out to the next buyer in four or five years. And the water sector just doesn't lend itself to flipping companies in four or five years. And then if you look at also the stock market, some companies list at valuations that are just insane. But there's... Uh, sufficient interest from financial investors to buy at such valuations. There's companies that have hardly any turnover and they're listed for two, three, four hundred million market cap. I mean, that's insane. That's really something I'd like to understand because I could give you some outliers and tell you there's, for instance, Innovise, which gets bought at 400 million and gets sold at 1 billion a couple of years later. Or I can give you the example, which was popping up recently of Soar, which might be up for sale again and which, if it's sold at the price which is advertised, would be like, a nice investment from equity because they would be doubling or tripling their invested money. I would agree with you that those are probably more the outliers than, than, than the truth. The second element of this valuation of companies, I've been discussing on that microphone with Kobe Nagar, for instance, from 374 Water. They have an awesome product, awesome company. It sounds really to be extremely promising, but they are discussing to 10 references and they are valued at 600 millions. So, it sounds like there is something happening in, in this financial valuation of companies, which goes beyond my little understanding as a finance muggle. Do you have a better view there? I have no explanation for these valuations. If you do the math on how much they have to sell to ever reach that value, you will find the math is impossible. And this is happening every month at the moment that I see companies that get sold at valuations that are something I don't know how to justify. And I mean, I'm a very simple guy in terms of doing the math. I'm not trying to make the fanciest model, but if you look at how many years will it take to earn back that money or how many years will it take to get to something where you then have a reasonable profit multiple to get to that, I don't see it. I just can't explain this. It's great for the companies to raise money on that valuation, but I just can't explain it. If you look at the most successful startups in water ever, like Xenon and so on, how long it took them to get to 50 million turnover to 100 million turnover. And you see these business plans that go to like half a billion in turnover in a few years. It's never. It's not going to happen. Which brings us a bit back to the work of Paul O'Callaghan, which is showing that it takes so much time to be in the middle of the market, which you could oppose by saying in his own model is saying that crisis driven could be really changing the game. And if you consider what we are living right now with water as a crisis, I mean, the 40% water that might be missing in 2030, the two-thirds of humanity which might be facing water scarcity by 2025, if you consider all of that as a crisis and you say, finally, the world is opening its eye on the crisis, then maybe that explains all of the shifts. Well, then you still have to ask two questions. What contribution will that company make to solve these problems? And how much better is that contribution if it makes any contribution at all, then the other solutions that are out there by other thoughtful companies uh, that just don't happen to look for an investor and go on the stock market, but have maybe a better offering. Well, I could finally fully sidetrack you here and, and tell you that, I mean, you're not an investor, as you, you explained it, but still you're acting in the market as an investor. So I guess you must be pitched quite a lot by companies. And I could bet you 
that every second pitch you receive says that the company is saving the world with regards to SDG 6 and, uh, and water scarcity, right? Yeah, every company is now ESG. It's not just impact anymore, it's ESG. And they solve all the problems of the world. And some of them have a decent technology. Some of them have an also-run technology. Some of them have a business model where you wonder, even when you sell to the oil and gas industry, you're ESG, right? I mean, fine. If you do something for the environment, you are ESG, yes. I don't know. Maybe I'm... I always am afraid I might get too cynical, but this is a bubble that will burst. At some point, all of these technologies have to work and make money. And if you look at companies that went the hard way to actually build a business and make it profitable, instead of just raising lots of money off some stock market story, it's hard work. SEMBRAIN is a good example. I mean, they managed to become profitable and do lots of meaningful treatments in drinking water uh, and in wastewater, just properly building a business. We started as a customer, not as an investor. We were an early customer of them. So does that give us a hint at what you're looking at when you're investing in a company? I mean, Ski on Water has invested in 14 companies over the past four years. So I guess you must have been finding some things in those companies. And what I understand here is that this element of being profitable or at least close to cash neutral is something you're looking at. Now we also do stuff every once in a while when we believe in a technology where it's still loss making. We need to be convinced of the contribution that technology or company has to the market or to our strategy. Like for a technology, we need to really be convinced it's 20, 30% better. And SEMBRAIN is. We tested it out because we were a customer. We bought it. We used it. We got a license agreement for the electronics segment with exclusivity and we got along very well with the owners. And when they needed funding to grow capacity, in the end, the conclusion was we buy the thing and we fund the capacity expansion. But that's a good problem. We fund the capacity expansion because there's more demand than they can supply at the moment. We're not inflating a company. And elsewhere, again, we are quite rigorous on our technical assessment to assess whether something makes a difference or it's a geographic place. Sometimes we buy ourselves into a geography. Sometimes we just take companies where there's no successor and it's just great companies and they would just have a problem if nobody takes over when the current owners retire. Uh, that's actually a perfect situation for us. So let's take the example of SEMBRAIN. SEMBRAIN is not bought by Ski on Water. It's acquired by Ovivo. So you're developing Ovivo. Ovivo is one of these five branches you have today, but it's arguably the largest one. You mentioned when you bought it, it was at around 300 million, something like that. And if the latest numbers I found are right, you're between four and 500 right now. Yeah, our total turnover is um, 750 in the group and Ovivo is uh, 400 of that, plus minus of that, yeah. So what is the bigger picture you're, you're aiming at? Is it really developing ski on water or to say, Ski on Water features a Ski on Water EPC company, and a Ski on Water EPC company happens to be Ovivo. Let's give Ovivo the right tools to develop into this EPC. Actually, the companies all have pretty clear profiles. Ovivo does municipal North America and energy and electronics worldwide. Envirochemie does industrial uh, in Europe, both freshwater and wastewater. Eliquo does municipal in Europe. PAC is a bit of a, yeah, an exception in terms of they provide worldwide a niche solution in, to take the total market there. Biological industrial wastewater treatment is a niche, but it's a very important niche. And they work with Ovivo in North America. They work with Eliquo in municipal in Europe. They work with our colleagues in the rest of the world. So there's a good fit there as well. So they actually have pretty clear profiles with more opportunity for collaboration than uh, issues of conflict. So do we have overlaps every once in a while? Yes. But is this a problem? No. They all know each other. They work with each other. We talk about it and we try to deliver what's best for the customer. Uh, but the overlaps are, I guess I know probably all of the overlaps myself. Uh, and then it's less than five to 10 situations a year. If I'm playing the devil's advocate here, you, you mentioned, for instance, Eliquo would be municipal Europe and Ovivo would be municipal North America. And let's say both have, I mean, they have an incredible path. They keep growing. At some point, both have to become global one way or the other. No, that's interesting. But municipal, every country is different. In Germany, we have tenders that are so-called bill of quantity tenders where an engineering firm designs and we just execute. We have an amazing team of blue color employees who build the plants and do the work. In the Netherlands, it's a 
EPC-like business where together with the customer the solution is designed. We and the customer design the solution and then we orchestrate the delivery. In the UK, we're tier two. We provide core treatment technologies, uh, for example, for uh, nutrient removal. In the US, it's more of an equipment business. Large construction companies are the general contractor and they procure technology packages. There's zero synergies between those markets other than knowledge. You're fully right. I took the wrong example. So let me take the other side of the story. <laughs> Obivo is active worldwide in industry and uh, Envirochemy is your vehicle for industry. So those must be the overlaps that you are facing from time to no, time. No, also almost never. Envirochemy doesn't do semiconductor. When Envirochemy talks about ultra-pure water, they talk about pharma, water for injection. When you ask an Ovivo guy about water for injection, it's way too dirty to even think of taking it seriously uh, because what we inject into the body is far dirtier than what we need for semiconductors. For good reasons, dirty is uh, relative, right? Uh, you don't want to inject distilled water into a body. It's not particularly healthy to have a large amount of distilled water. And semiconductor is absolutely nothing in there. So you drink a few liters of that, you die. That's, again, an example where, yes, it's both industrial, but there's zero overlaps. The same holds for power plants. And Varichemi doesn't do thermal power plants. Ovivo basically lives off its uh, track record in the nuclear industry doing nuclear in the UK and a few projects that still happen because there's not, not so much new build and thermal power plants these days. So again, no overlap. So if you wanted to pick an overlap, it would be between PAC and Envirochemy, where we sometimes have the situation that Envirochemy, as a provider of complete solutions, also has an anaerobic component in solutions. And it could be that they compete, but we talk about it. And in most cases, it actually makes sense now that PAC is part of Ski on Water to use the PAC technology. But there's also applications where Envirochemy has a better technology, like in dairy. And then maybe uh, PAC would use the Envirochemy technology. So actually, this works pretty well. We were lucky. Very interesting. I think you explained why my concerns are wrong, even if I'm the devil's advocate. So it makes a lot of sense. Regarding your strategy, you mentioned that you, you want to be this company, which is the, um, let's say, agnostic, large with multiple brands solution providers, so a bit the Danaher one layer up into the pyramid of, of the water industry. If you look at the vertical limits of that, where does it start and where does it stop? On the product level on the bottom, what would be the smallest particle into your ski on water group? And on the top of it, regarding the, the connection to the end customers, the consultants and all of that, where do you want to stop playing and say, no, that's no longer our business? That's a really good question. Let me start on the top. We are not an EPC who provides you a $100 million desalination plant or who builds you a uh, $200 million uh, municipal waste water treatment plant in country so-and-so. We do mid-sized projects the largest projects we do are in the range of 50 to 100 million dollars as an exception the typical projects are a few millions to 10 20 millions the semiconductor is on the higher end industrial uh, is typically on the lower end with exceptions where we have 10 20 30 millions so we we provide solutions ideally without civil uh, construction to our customers, where we are the one-stop shop for, say, a combination of technologies um, solving treatment challenges that are a little bit more unique than just a very large conventional plant, but where you have to maybe do lab work, test, try, engineer to find a solution that actually works and that intelligently takes the streams apart so that you can recycle, recover, be energy efficient, all those things. That's on the higher end. On the lower end, if you go down the value chain, we are very careful in terms of backward integration because you can't compete with your supply chain. If you compete with your suppliers, they will not like you anymore. So to invest into products only makes sense for us if there's a distinctive advantage or if it's a segment where we think we have found something so unique that we actually want to just really have it for ourselves. To give you an example of a small investment, we invest into Sentry, which is an innovative sensor. There's a lot of benefit in the close collaboration we have with Sentry in terms of how to make the best use of that sensor, because we sell a lot of biological systems, especially anaerobic systems where the Sentry sensor has its strength. And we figured this is a chance for us to have a closer relationship and work with them in a different way. But also we like the sensor. And if nobody gives such companies a chance for funding, that's also part of our mission that if you really find something that could make a difference, we also support it. So that's a small investment, but they need to sell to our competitors as well. 
and we're a minority shareholder. Management owns a relevant stake. We have a co-investor, Factor E, who are an amazing co-investor because they also care about deploying such solutions in less developed parts of the world, which is, again, a good angle. So this was a setup that just worked very well. Regarding this, this approach is something I read on your website that you either go for ownership of the company or for minority investment, but with a significant size. Is it because you, you really want to bend the shape of any kind of company you would be investing it? I mean, bend, not in a negative definition, but really to help them grow and not just be, you know, sitting in the back of the car and, and, and waiting for it to be a financial return. If it's a core investment, the logic for control is twofold. One is to manage these conflicts of interest that could happen because you actually have anti-competition laws that don't allow you to just compare uh, lead lists and share leads and so on if you're not part of a group because that could be considered market manipulation. Similarly, in procurement, you can't do it to capture synergies if you're not controlling both sides. That's one. The other is most of the time, it will also be difficult if then we want to invest into further growth, like into Envirochemy, we invest to buy additional companies. Then each time you have a co-shareholder, you have this conversation about what's the valuation, who's funding that investment. And this way, if we decide we want to do an investment in the company, we can just do it without having to consider the impact on minority shareholders. So that's the logic for going for control. And with the young companies, they need to also have the incentive to build their business. They need to be entrepreneurs, so you you shouldn't take away control from them unless something goes terribly wrong. But we want to help them, right? We want to help them. We don't want to form them, but we want to help them. And if it goes wrong or if it doesn't progress the right way, we also want to be able to intervene. Makes a lot of sense. I will, <laughs> but who am I to tell you if it makes sense or not? But just to tell you from my humble position, makes a lot of sense. Within the, the Skion galaxy today, do you also do operation of plants? We do, mostly in Europe at the moment on the industrial side. It is something that has growth potential. It doesn't have to be built, own, operate, right? It can also be just O&M contracts. Also in Southeast Asia, we do this, and we have all kinds of service offerings also that are not exactly going all the way to operating it, but providing remote support, uh, providing IT-based uh, monitoring and uh, optimization. So there's a broad range. In our core market so far, this has not been such a big issue or opportunity because the BOO, BOT is not so interesting when you have endless supply of cheap money yourself as a customer, because we always have to add a risk markup when we fund something, and we've done that, and it also works. And also, typically, industrial customers are not building completely new in Europe. They are optimizing existing, and then they have their own personnel, and they don't want to like then have redundant personnel and personnel doesn't want to be transferred over to somebody other than their current employer in many cases. But this is changing. There's more and more of this coming up. And it's an opportunity to also yeah, improve the way plants are operated. In many cases, we see this when we operate the plant before handover. The performance is better than when we hand over because for our customers, the core business is not treating wastewater or water. The core business is to do something else. Uh, for us, it's a core business. So obviously, we have personnel that has more experience and um, also we, we have the, the back end that can support. But we're also selling this as a service, this support, of course. It's very interesting what you mentioned about the specificity of the, of the European market because I've been discussing on, the, on that microphone with several companies like Axin Water or which are very present in the North American market and which are really building upon this uh, wastewater treatment as a service or water as a service. And even though it is emerging in Europe, it's maybe not yet at the same level. But where I wanted to go with that question was a bit more a flashback to 10 years ago, because you were building ski on water from scratch. And um, if you had asked me to build a company from scratch, I would probably, and I'm probably wrong. I mean, you're proving me that I'm wrong, but I would have not have chosen your section of the market. I would have went for operation, which seems to be the thing which delivers better margins, which is stable over time. From a risk return profile, you are right. We take pretty high risks compared to the returns we make when we deliver complete treatment solutions. There's a lot of service business in our business as well. For example, Envirochemy is more than 50% services. 
there's different ways of doing services, right? You operate or you provide consumables and maintenance and what have you. So there's a broader range of answers to this. But we wanted to have the ability to also bring new solutions uh, into the market. And for that, you need to actually deliver the technical solution, not just operate it. We happily will operate and it's a growing market segment for us to operate. There's also systems where we basically get paid by cubic meter treated. By the way, in the corona crisis, some companies learned the hard way that when all of a sudden manufacturing stops because factories are shut down, it's not so nice to just have all your revenues be paid by a cubic meter treated uh, because when there's no wastewater anymore, you get no turnover. It's, it's a mix and the operations segment is growing. You mentioned how Ski on Water is a perfect partner if a company has, um, let's say, its ownership going to... Uh, I mean, to just retire and maybe have this succession company. There's another path, which you, you, you mentioned with this startups you're investing in, with this minority shares and all of that. And there's a third path, which is listed on your, on your website, which is licensing. Like this time, you have the technologies and you're looking for partners to develop in markets where you would not be present yet. From those three paths, which is the most important for you in terms of business, and what is how do you intend to develop that in the future? We will continue to buy companies. We buy four to eight companies every year. Some of them are publicly announced, some not, or, or just announced in the local markets, because there's so much opportunity there to find great companies that are a fit with us. And we, we have sufficient amount of pipeline there. So that's just the core of how we do it as long as the valuations are meaningfully acceptable. We are very happy to collaborate. Again, this links back into the fragmentation of the industry. We don't intend to rule this world. We will not rule this world. And uh, since we're dealing with real problems for society, collaboration is the name of the game. And we do this in countries where either we can't buy anybody or we don't want to buy anybody or we just happen to find a good partner. PAC has historically worked with partners uh, since its beginning, for example. So there's uh, great partners across the world. And Ecopreneur was PAC's licensee, and then we bought Ecopreneur. Uh, so this was the other way around, right? They started as a licensee, and then we bought them when they were for sale. We have great partners in various parts of the world, like China, the Middle East, and some other countries also that we work with at the ski on water level to bring solutions to the market that are meaningful for that market segment. You just said that you have a list of future investments. I'm not asking you to disclose that list right now to understand your approach. If someone is listening to that and say, hey, I have really cool company and I need to reach out to Reinhard because he can help me out. That can be the, the decisive step into my entrepreneurial journey. Is it something you're happy to receive, like receive some pitches, or are you more of a hunter and you want to, you've seen that company and you know that that is something you need? We started as a hunter when we had not this reputation in the industry. We went after companies. Ovivo was a cold call. We had no relationship whatsoever. We did our analysis for the North American market and we just went, met the chairman and the CEO and said, we want to privatize you. And within a few months, we had worked out a deal that then also included the pension fund CDPQ as a shareholder who would stay, and we privatized Ovivo without even employing an investment bank on our side. So that was hunting. But many good companies also approached us because they heard of us. When we bought what used to be called KG Nellingen in Germany, now it's Adiquo KGN, which is more the drinking water side of our municipal business, they had an offer from a large corporate to get acquired because they also long-term had a succession topic and they heard about our reputation and how we do this in the German market from Liquor Stolz. And then they approached us and said, well, we want to talk to you to see if this is an alternative. And it ended up being the alternative. Uh, so it's a mix. And increasingly with, with how well known we are, we get approached and we will look at every proposal and everybody will get an answer in a relatively short period of time. And we've come across amazing companies from cold call situations and also some of our partners in the world. They just cold call, found us on the internet and approached us and uh, it's uh, turned out to be extremely successful relationships. So yes, uh, we are available. So that was Reinhard Hübner, the investor, which we've been discussing now for some minutes. There's another part of you which is interesting to understand how you do all of that. If I understand it right, and you're going to correct me if it's not the case, when you are making these kind of big bets into some companies, you also support the execution. 
you are still, or you've, you were the director of Ovivo, you are the managing director of Eliquo. So how does that come into play? How do you, at some point, just change your hat and say, now I'm executing on the plan and I want to grow that portion of the business? Everything has a history. And obviously, I can't complain about anything we have because uh, I was involved in acquiring it. Obviously, the execution must be part of my job. Eliquo was initially out of bankruptcy. It was an insolvent group of companies uh, in the German municipal sector. We picked up in an asset deal thousands of projects and 250 employees and made it a company again. So initially, I was actually really managing Eliquo after we picked up the assets. By now, my role as managing director is more the admin role uh, in the holding to do some of the paperwork or sign some of the paperwork, and it's run by its management team. So my involvement is very limited. Ovivo has a board. It's our largest asset, so obviously I'm part of the board of Ovivo. And the board also has independent directors who are adding amazing value in this case because it's a great board, but I'm not managing Ovivo by any means. Uh, but uh, we are entrepreneurs, and if things happen, they happen. So at the moment, I'm also acting CEO of PAC because we had the departure of the CEO. And so in the interim, until there's a new CEO, Somebody has to do it, and I was on the board of PAC for 10 years, so that's me in this case. Now, this obviously means that I only do this part-time, and I still do my main job, but we are pretty hands-on, and when somebody needs help, we will help. And if an intervention is needed, we will also do the intervention. Thankfully, there's not many interventions needed, but this is kind of how, I mean, again, I'm at heart, I'm an operations guy, right? So I also enjoy to be on the front lines every once in a while. Let me leverage this hands-on aspect I'm wondering, now really from very far of to all of that, I'm wondering if you could identify like best and worst practices when it comes to water entrepreneurship and maybe also water investing. Would you have some of them to share? Of course, I don't want to disclose the secret sauce, I guess, but... Look, I mean, at the end of the day, for the water sector, it would be good if all the money that's poured into it has impact. As a consequence, there's no protection of anything here. I think it's important to face the realities of this industry, and the realities are to quite an extent in terms of go-to-market contained in what uh, Paulo Callahan did his PhD on, that it is a difficult market, it's slow, it's fragmented, uh, and you need to really understand what your value proposition is. Uh, and if you understand that, you can define the right strategy for how to make it happen. Let me use one or two examples. If you have developed something that is an improvement of something that exists today and a more energy efficient um, dewatering device or something, in that case, it's a thing that needs to be integrated into a complete solution. The advantage is not like going to be 20, 30% because there's a loss of physics. Go find a partner that already is active in the segment and partner up with that entity. Don't try to do it alone. If you have something really unique, you can try it alone, but don't get yourself investors that think you can expedite it by throwing more money at it, because then you will burn through that money and everybody will be frustrated. Everybody will be pushing you to pay that money back and more crazy things will happen. Instead of saying, this will take time, we only need to keep the cost base small, get as many grants in as possible, minimize the burn rate, and at some point we will have a break even and then we can start to grow. Sembrane never lost money, for example. They managed to do a capital-intensive thing like ceramic membranes without really losing money. But they went slow, step by step, very methodological. You can throw money at it. It won't grow faster. It will just burn more money. And this is, I think, a be realistic. Don't try to do it all yourself. Collaborate. Find the right partners. There's great people in this industry. This is what attracted me to it, that there's so many great people who are passionate about what they do. And many are open to collaboration. Sometimes you have to just give up the dream of building this company and selling it for $100 million in a few years. Because in all reality, maybe it works and then it will be gobbled up, but this will not be a long-term success in terms of in the market because the product will then disappear at some point or it will be a failure. Think about what you want to achieve. If you want to make a difference, find the right path for that. And every once in a while, there's the, the super cool technology that will make a major difference. You, you can actually make happen as a startup. And the same also goes for what kind of owner is the right owner. Is it somebody who wants to flip the company in four years? 
and needs to double profitability or turnover in four years, that's hard. It only works by taking risks. You can always grow revenues, but the question is at what risk and at what margin. And if you grow revenues very fast, at some point when the projects are finished, uh, you will pay the price. Regarding these owners, I'm really curious. You say you now receive more pitches now that you're established in that market. Do you see many pitches from people who just have read from zero to one or the four hour work week or this kind of entrepreneurship staple book? And that happened to try to do it in water because from a marketing perspective, billions of people lacking access to water must be a blue ocean of something. And then that make you awesome pitches with hypergrowth strategies because you could be just winning the market and you have to cool them down and tell them, yeah, it's a special, special sector. When they've reached that point, you can't cool them down anymore. They think I'm a crazy conservative idiot, right? You can classify these business plans by the type of substance that was consumed when making up the numbers. <laughs> um, the craziest I've ever gotten was something uh, based on a cavitation technology, zero turnover now. In five years, they wanted to do a billion in turnover and 600 millions in profit. I mean, you, you look at this uh, and then they wonder why you don't want to talk to them. And it, it's hard to stay uh, friendly in such a conversation. Just, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I'm speechless, right? I mean, crystal meth is surely not good enough. I want some of that stuff for my next party. Um, it's probably, but it's probably toxic. If I try to be, again, the devil's advocate here, because I've heard you mention that, that one on, with Will and Tom on their, on, in their podcast, and it was like, okay, I'm 99%, I agree with you. But if I try to play out the one person, if you look at the iPhone, the iPhone comes out in 2007 and everybody says Steve Jobs is a genius. And you look at what IBM did in 1993, and they had this touchscreen phone, which had most of the features of the iPhone, of course, not the same size and everything, but they were just right 10 years too early. And the same setup of people, maybe if you had put them in Palo Alto in 2007, would have done the iPhone and maybe we wouldn't know the iPhone, but we would know the IBM one. What I'm trying to say is that maybe everybody was wrong about cavitation or was even right about cavitation, but the stars were not aligned for it to become mainstream. And right now is the moment and you missed it because you thought they were on crystal meth. Okay, um, good point. The question is, what are we trying to solve? The iPhone invented a new kind of thing that wasn't there before. It's completely a blue ocean. Agree. In water, most people, like you and me, we want safe water to come out of the tap, and we want it to go down the toilet in an environmentally friendly way. Anything else, we don't care. Nobody wants a portal where you can see your water consumption on a daily basis on your phone. Nobody wants all kinds of fancy gadgets to interact with your water utility. You want it to work. Uh, on the industrial side, it's a bit more complicated, but you also just want it to work. There's limits when you move large amounts of water around as to how sexy you can make it. At the end, we are still a concrete, plastic, and steel industry because the vast majority of the assets is the pipes uh, in the ground uh, and the basins of the plants treating the water. Now, does that mean that there's not amazing stuff out there? There is amazing stuff out there. But in a fragmented industry, you will never grow that fast. And sometimes also you should really challenge the basic underlying scientific principles of what you're saying. When somebody tells me that electricity consumption of an iPhone, and I've had that case, is good enough to remove PFAS in relevant quantities from uh, water, then this is against the laws of physics and chemistry. Same as you claim you can do desalination without energy, everybody has to deal with the osmotic uh, differential. And no scientist can find a workaround. The only question is, can you find waste energy or something that you can use to make it theoretically be energy-free? It's not energy-free, never. And stick to first principles, and, and then the claims implode. And also, everybody tried to do gasification of sewage sludge. It's a really interesting technology conceptually because you directly convert it to gas, and then you can use something with that gas. Everybody who's tried so far has failed because of one simple thing, which is the ash melting point of sludge, where you get tar formations, and then you have a very dirty gas, and then it becomes prohibitively expensive. We are really open-minded. We looked at 10 to 15 installations ourselves. We went to the installations to take a look because we really wanted to find one. But none of them is still working. So can this miracle happen? Maybe. But at least be humble and think about all the people who have tried before and failed and find out why you will make it and what's different between what everybody else tried. That's maybe a bit the uh, the summary. We're, one of our values is curiosity at Ski on Water. So we really try to look at anything that is proposed to us 
we look at it, but we also treat it with a grain of salt. And if then they can't even tell us how it compares to established technologies, what the energy balance and the mass balance is, and how that compares to established technology, then maybe do your homework and do a proper energy and mass balance before, because any customer will want to see an energy and mass balance as well. Do you also look at what is done in the university and the academia? Because they are not that much hotspots in terms of, of water universities. So you could be monitoring them quite closely. And sometimes they have technologies which are mind-blowing, but they are maybe not the right entrepreneurs to develop it. So maybe you could be the entrepreneur. We collaborate with universities. We are very well integrated in the Dutch water sector, for example, with uh, Wageningen and Delft and Wetzus. We also work with several German universities, uh, do research projects together with them. And this is also a good pool of employees for us when they graduate, the students we work with in these projects. We have done work with the University of Washington in Seattle, for example, uh, at Ovivo on uh, technology development. Uh, so so we, we do work with different universities and also we are invested in the Emerald Water Technology Fund. Uh, so this way we get access to the venture capital scene uh, with locations in Singapore, Europe and North America. So that's also extremely helpful in terms of seeing things. So, so yes, we do. Can we do a bit more? Yes, but also we are fully loaded with customer work. So there's limits as to how many of these research projects we can engage with in parallel. Okay, I'm not opening the venture capital door because if I do that, then I have to pick one more hour of your time. So maybe that is something for a sequel. Last question for me in that deep dive is, what do you see as the future of ski on water? If you look in five or 10 years, what will tell you? I mean, 10 years is the double of your current lifetime. So let's say when you're, you reach that milestone, what tells you that you've succeeded? For us, it's not about size or anything. We want to be perceived by our customers as the group that solves their water and wastewater challenges in a innovative and environmentally uh, sustainable way. And we want to be able to also really solve their problem and support them with operations and maintenance and what have you. That's one. Hopefully, there's a list of young technologies that we manage to support on their path to adoption. It can be that we only supported them for part of their journey, and that's it. It can be that we are just a customer, but maybe we were the first customer or the second customer, but still, it would be nice. Maybe also we own a few of those, uh, but that's not what it's necessarily about. And in an ideal world, what we are still working on is also to how to bring solutions to less developed parts of the world that are affordable enough to not require, say, subsidies or, or grants or what have you. We have started this work with the sembrane membrane on borehole water in contaminated wells in Africa. We had a first iteration on this, but the product is not robust enough yet because the ambition is that the product is basically everything else around the membrane is produced locally and integrated locally. We wanted it to be basically a bucket that can be hand operated with a membrane in there, so high tech and low tech combined. First version worked, but I think it's not robust enough yet. But this ambition to also do something in those parts of the world where people are less fortunate in terms of quality and quantity of water, that that's also part of it. And if in 10 years, there's this group that maybe is by then still somewhat bigger, but especially still this group of people who like to work together and work together because of the passion for water and makes things happen, then that's success. I think I'd like to see that success. It speaks to me. So I guess um, I see why you, you, you call that success. At the end, it's the people. I mean, this is an experience-based industry. It's not the iPhone is a product. I mean, you need great people to develop it. But once you've developed it and marketed it, you just need to have a contract manufacturer to manufacture it and you turn it out. This industry, the knowledge of the people is required for every solution. Every solution is different, especially on the industrial side. Every challenge is different. And these experienced engineers and technicians who afterwards build the plant and make it happen on the ground our also our installation crews they are the ones with their experience who make it happen it's not like there's this one genius who develops something and then it happens well reinhard thanks a lot for the openness and for everything you've shared in that deep dive if that's fine with you i propose you to switch to the rapid fire questions yes It's time for the rapid fire questions. So in that last section, I try to keep the questions short and you can keep the answers short as well. 
And that all starts with, what is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? In the past, the most exciting one was the privatization of Ovivo, uh, because that was a wild journey. Right now, I would say the piece we want to do on the developing uh, market side is super exciting because success is measured by finding something that is standalone viable and scales because it's affordable. And that is really a challenge that is robust and affordable. And also, obviously, it's something that we do next to the day-to-day work of dealing with customers. So I'm really excited about that one. Can you name one thing that you've learned the hard way? We learned the hard way how slow technology scale, and we lost significant money trying to uh, do this uh, with our first investment. So that and how much it is just people-driven and how, how you can still, after many years misread people or or not get the full story when you're not close enough to uh, also more people in an organization. But overall, on the plus side, again, it's people. There's so many passionate, uh, amazing people in this industry. That's what's so enjoyable about water. Is there something you are doing today in your job that you will not be doing in 10 years? If we continue to grow like we grow, I will probably not be managing director of any of the operational entities anymore in 10 years. What is the trend to watch out for in the water sector? I think there's a lot of potential from digitalization and everybody talks about it, but it needs to be done the right way. AI doesn't solve the world and uh, it's a black box, but there's a lot of potential there. So I would say that's one of the strongest trends, but uh, the other one will be still closing loops decentrally, more decentralized recycling, recovery, more decentralization, uh, different architecture of Uh, also urban infrastructure compared to what was built historically. Plus, there are good chances that these two trends walk hand in hand because if you work decentralized, you need to be digital. Yes. Digital is not, I would say, a strong vertical into Skion right now. Does that mean it's somewhere in your stack of companies yet to acquire or something you build organically? No, uh, we we don't announce everything we do. Uh, We bundled our digital activities into a company in Canada called InControl. And uh, with them, we develop both solutions for our internal optimization of treatment systems and so on with digital tools. But we also sell and provide something to customers and other industry partners. For example, we have a solution called OpsControl, which is a yeah, app-based solution for operator support that gives video instructions and manuals, and but also allows to do operator rounds, but also allows to remote control plants. And this we are open to provide to anybody who is interested in using that, because again, it's not about us ruling the world. Uh, it's about helping our customers operate the plants. And we are very aware of the fact that they also have equipment from other vendors and plants that were built by others. But at the end, we want our customers to Uh, succeed with their plants and we're happy to open this up to other players in the industry. So you said it's not about you ruling the word. Still, here's my second last question. If you were a word political leader, what would be your first action to influence the fate of the world's water challenges? This is super controversial, but we need full cost recovery. If the systems can't pay for themselves based on the fees they generate, they will always be influenced by politics, by budget constraints and what have you. And the success of the countries that have very well-functioning utility sectors is also full-cost recovery. Because at the end, it needs to pay for itself. We accept that everybody pays for electricity, everybody pays for internet, uh, not just full-cost recovery, but also a healthy profit for the providers. And in water, they can't even recover their cost in many countries. And I'm not saying we need to privatize the water sector for that. That's not the point. But a utility needs to be able to cover its costs from its revenue and not be depending on begging for money somewhere. Three short thoughts on that. First, I fully agree with you. And you have to know that we are a minority. So every time I'm mentioning that, I'm told that I'm a bad capitalist devil for saying that. The second thing is, I don't know if you've read David Lloyd Owen's book, uh, Global Water Funding, but he's making the case about that and how this uh, cost recovery aspect is very important, something we've discussed on that podcast microphone as well. And yeah, actually, I've condensed my one and my three together, but I was giving a conference last week at a university in France, and uh, all the questions toward the end of the conference were leading towards, you know, you're, you're just supporting big capital when you're saying that water should have a cost. 
what's the next thing? We, we should pay for air or whatever. And people are really mixing this element of paying for water and paying for the treatment it involves to purify water at different stakes in the water cycle and also conveying the water. So long sidetrack from my end. Sorry, but just to say, I fully agree with you and it's good to hear. <laughs> you can see this. I mean, wherever people don't pay for water, the consumption is substantially higher. When East Germany reunited with West Germany and water meters were introduced, consumption collapsed. And if you look at the UK or Ireland, where there's no proper metering of end customers in many cases, you have much higher consumption, much higher water losses. It just doesn't work. There's this thing with Adam Smith and diamonds and water, right? Uh, diamonds have no value in use because they're utterly useless, at least when you have them as a person. I mean, industrially, you can use them as a very sharp, hard tool to cut things and so on. But as when you have a diamond, it's useless, right? But you're willing to pay a lot of money for it. Uh, with water, there's a lot of value in use because without water, you die. But still, mankind is not willing to pay for water. That's one I'm going to steal from you. I didn't know that exact one. I'll send you the proper quote. <laughs> Last question. Would you have someone to recommend that I should definitely invite on that same microphone as soon as possible? I can give you two different people um, that I recommend. One is Victoria Edwards of FIDO. Uh, she's doing leakage detection in a very innovative way. And leakage is one of our biggest problems in terms of the amount of water lost. And she's also an amazing entrepreneur. The other one is Ulla Pöschel from our portfolio doing advanced oxidation uh, for very nasty wastewater. She also has a journey uh, of how difficult it is to get a startup to success because her first startup with that technology went bankrupt uh, and we were in touch back then and now she's part of our group. So she can also tell you about the hard way a startup can go wrong, but still she's now part of our group. So in the end, it worked out. Well, awesome recommendations. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Reinhard, for this hour we spent together. I learned lots of things looking into the, the path of, of Skion and everything you, you shared. And again, thanks for the openness, because I know that some of these questions you could have simply answered by, sorry, I'm not disclosing. So thanks a lot for sharing. No problem with that. At the end, uh, I hope it's interesting for those who listen and anybody who uh, wants to collaborate or, or has an idea can happily contact me. Where shall they contact you the best? Info at skionwater.com. Perfect. So like always, the links to that are in the show notes. Well, thanks a lot and talk to you soon. All right. Thanks a lot. It was a very inspiring conversation. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.